If you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 28, better make sure I got these right. Yep, verses 18 through 20. These are the last three verses of Matthew's gospel. We know them as the Great Commission. Listen here to God's Word. Jesus came up and spoke to them, that is to all the apostolic band gathered there, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Our second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. This occurs within a week or two of the day of Pentecost. Peter and John have, were on their way to the temple to pray one day. They saw a guy there who was infirm, lame, had been that way from birth, and they, in the name of Jesus, healed him. He was healed and got up and uh, began to praise God, as you might imagine. The guy had been born that way from birth. And uh, they preach to the people. They get arrested by the high priest and his, his company. And then uh, they get, the next morning, they are gathered before them, and they, they ask the charges against them. So here's what that says. Listen here to God's Word. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them, that is, Peter and John, in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, Jesus Christ, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. And then our primary text today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is not yet the vision that uh, John has seen, but it's his sort of a prologue to it. Listen here to God's Word. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, 
and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Lord God, we stand before you a thankful yet needy people. Thankful, Lord, for all the good things you've done, the things you've worked in and through our lives. But, Lord, we remain very needy for you to continue to work in us and through us, to give us that which we cannot get on our own. So come, Lord God, by your Holy Spirit, shine upon us. May your word run swiftly and deeply through our hearts and minds, and so be glorified that we know that your word is true. We ask this through Christ Jesus, our Savior, the Lord of all. Amen. Do you recognize that we live in tumultuous times? Are you aware of that? Do you feel the waves and stuff splashing around you? I trust. Didn't this week's political screeching alarm you? It did me. It's like a big old dark cloud comes and hangs over you. Oh my goodness, what's all going to go up from this? Did you decide to retreat and not listen anymore, just turn everything off? Some people did. Did it fire you up? Man, you're going to go out there and screech with them? Some do that. The news was not settling nor reassuring. What's going to come of all this? We don't know. Such were the times in A.D. 30 to A.D. 70 in the Middle East. Now, that's from the time when Jesus was born till the Romans conquered Jerusalem. A very tumultuous time, particularly for the Jews and for the Christians. The question was this, were the Christians Jews or were they not? I don't think we appreciate sufficiently how large that question loomed in the minds of all those folks in the Middle East and beyond that, the Mediterranean circle, in those 40 years. Huge question. The Jews weren't sure, nor were the Christians. After all, all, without exception, all of the early Christians for the first number of years were Jews. The temple was there in Jerusalem, and the apostles and Christians still went there. We read about that in the book of Acts. Are they Jews or are they Christians, or is there, is there any distinction to be made between those two groups? Uh, even the apostles weren't sure how to answer that question. And that question is the bulk of the New Testament's our storyline all revolves around that question. Are the Jews and the Christians the same? Or are they distinct and different? Now, the Romans, Colin, you ready to put that, flash that first baby up there? The Romans and others did not see any difference. Here's some Acts, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 18, verses 12 through 16. This describes uh, a scene that happened 
uh, where Paul had been preaching in a, in a, a Greek city. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man <clears throat> persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. So there you hear the, uh, excuse me, there you hear the Jewish leaders saying, Hold on, Paul, who we would say would be an exemplar of a Christian, says, This guy is leading folks astray. Persuades men to worship contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, so he was going to defend himself. Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of vicious crimes, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names in your own law, Look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of those matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. So as far as the Romans and Greeks and other folks were concerned, the Jews and the Christians were just in the same bag, same mixture, same people. Uh, now this thought, this notion afforded the Christians protection for a while. If they were Jews, they got special treatment by the Romans. You see, the Jews over the centuries had been hard-headed enough that they refused to worship the Roman gods. They said, we'll only worship Jehovah. And they, they burned them, they killed them, they did, destroyed them, they did all these things, and the Jews wouldn't budge. They said, we're, we're, we're hammered down on that. And so finally the Romans just said, all right, we'll make one exception to all the nations we conquer. The Jews can keep their own religion. And they don't have to worship our gods. They don't have to make the sacrifices and other things that we make other people make to say that they are okay with the Roman gods. And so the Christians who likewise were not about to say that the Roman gods were really gods. I mean, we did memorize Acts 17, uh, what was it, 24 through 32, where Paul is on um, Mars Hill in, in, in Athens. He says, you know, gods made with hands aren't gods at all. But the, the Christians were afforded protection because as far as the secular Greek and Roman authorities and whoever they were, they thought that the, the Jews and the Christians were the same thing. They may have some disputes within themselves, but the Christians received the same protection, the same leniency that was given to the Jews. And so that was good. Now, the Jewish leaders early on began to see the issue quite clearly. Uh, Acts 4 5 through 12, which we, we uh, read, they say, by what authority or in what name do you do these things? Has this been done? Did you hear Peter's confession? Here's the first thing he said. I think Colin has this there somewhere. Yeah, Peter's confession to the Jewish authorities. One, he said, this guy who was born lame and it has now been made whole, and he was over 40 years of age. This, it was Jesus who did this. Says we want to make, make it perfectly clear, wasn't us, wasn't some magic act, wasn't anything like that. It was Jesus, the Nazarene, who did this. Furthermore, he said, yes, that's right, the Jesus who you crucified. That's going to win friends and influence neighbors, Right? 
That's who he was, the Jesus, the guy who you crucified. He tells these leaders in Jerusalem, this is what happened, and you were the ones who did it. Moreover, he says that Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the leaders and rulers, but which became the chief cornerstone of all what God does. He's the stone. And when we say the stone, I hope that reverberates in your mind from what we preached last week about Daniel 2 and that stone. This, this figure will come up again and again. Uh, but he, he's, and the Jews were looking for this. They wanted to see the stone that's going to be there. And he says, Jesus is him. He's the stone which was rejected by you, but he is, in fact, the cornerstone of all that God has done and will do in this world. And then he made a very important claim, and it was this. Exclusivity. Salvation in no one else. It's, it's not possible to be right with God for eternity except through the Lord Jesus Christ. No other name at all has been given to men on earth for salvation. Whew. So that makes it pretty clear, right? It's pretty straightforward. And this is early on, but now the Jews and Christians still have to work this all out. What are we going to say to this? How are we going to handle this? What, what are we going to do? Uh, and, you know, we always think the Jews were the hard-hearted ones who wouldn't receive Christ, but the early church was pretty hard-hearted and pretty hard-headed too. They wouldn't receive Gentiles. They didn't, you know, it was five to ten years probably before they began specifically to send people out to bear witness, to evangelize among Gentile people. Do you remember how it happened? Acts chapter 10, way on yonder. If God had not revealed to Peter that vision of the, the sheet coming down out of heaven and with all kinds of animals in it, he said, rise, kill and eat. Peter says, oh, forbid it, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life. He says, wait, if I say you do it, you better do it. So rise, kill and eat. Three times that happened. And just as the last time the vision went back up, a knock on the door. Some guys from uptown from a town up the, up the coast, said, uh, God has sent an angel to talk to Cornelius and said, bring Simon, who's called Peter, here to tell us about how to get right with God. <coughs> These were Romans. These were Gentiles. There's no way Peter would have gone. He said, no, no, no. It's not allowed for us to even be under the same roof with you. But God had given him this vision and said, listen, if I say it, you better do it. And so he went, and you remember the account, he goes in, in there, and Cornelius has his friends and people around there, and, and uh, the way I read it anyway, you have to put this in there, is that he is just sort of given a pro forma presentation of who Jesus is. And in the middle of it, the Holy Spirit falls on all those who are gathered. They begin to praise God, speak in tongues, and uh, Peter's undone. And he says, well, what, he's going to have to defend himself when he gets back to Jerusalem. He tells the elders there, well, what was I to do? How could I refuse the water of baptism to those who God had obviously made his own? And they said, well, okay. 
God did something. So that was how it began. And then, but they still didn't send people out to actually evangelize Gentile areas of the world. That did not happen until Stephen was stoned. And then there was a great persecution that arose. And they were scattered. And then some of those who were scattered, they began to talk to people in their neighborhoods, wherever they were. And God began to save Gentiles. Now, uh, you understand this was part of God's plan all along, right? So let's show this next slide up here. We read it, Matthew 28, 19. Jesus' command, his commission to the disciples way back before the day of Pentecost, before his ascension, before all this, just after the resurrection, before he ascends, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So this, is, this, this was something Jesus had taught, had shared with them, had commanded them, but they simply did not hear it that way. Now I know that you're saying, how could they be so dumb? Because they're like you and me, you know? <laughs> they see things, I see things through my, my prescriptions here, and, and sometimes I, it, it means that I can't see things I should see. Right? So they, they said, well, it couldn't mean, it couldn't mean Gentile people. It means maybe Jews in Gentile areas. Who knows what they thought? But the thing is, they would not and did not do that until they were impelled to, they were forced to by God. <clears throat> well, when those Gentiles began to become Christians by the bucket load, as it were, no matter where they went, you know, you like to be living in those times where you just sort of mention casually to your friend that, about the Lord Jesus, what, 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 tell me more, tell me, and they get saved. It was one of those times, all right? Like that, the Gentiles, God was just doing it. Well, this really stirs the pot, especially for the Christian leaders back in Jerusalem. What are they supposed to do? Should they live as Jews? Do they have to come three times a year to Jerusalem to worship? Of the holy feasts? Do they have to keep the dietary law? Uh, what all are they supposed to do? And so there was this big council called in Jerusalem, and Paul guys had to go there. It's in Acts chapter 15. And here eventually is what James and the council concluded. Simeon, that is Simon Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, what Peter had done, as Paul came back and was saying what had happened in these various places, Peter said, well, you know, I had something like that happen when I went to Cornelius' house. Remember? And, and I had to come back, and, but, but, you know, so he reminds him of that, that God had done something. says, with... <clears throat> So Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Now, not just peoples, but a people. That is, he's making the, these various persons into a, a compact group. You need to know that. With this, the words of the prophets agree. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. That is, let them come in. And they said they don't have to keep the whole Jewish law. They said they should not eat things, uh, should not eat blood, should not eat things sacrificed to idols. 
and no, no sexual immorality. And so they, they just, uh, that's what they said. Now that's his conclusion. Now <clears throat> that didn't solve the entire problem. You'll still have Judaizers going around among the churches telling people, if you don't get circumcised as a Jew, you can't be saved. That's what the whole epistle to the Galatians is about. And that same issue comes up repeatedly in the New Testament. So there were those who said, well, the council may have said this, folks may have said one thing or the other, but we don't agree necessarily. We have a way of thinking beyond that. And so we still had Judaizers. Now, let's fast forward. I've tried to set the scene for you as far as just the turmoil. In the early church and during this time of Jews and Christians, what's their relationship? Fast forward to A.D. 66 to 68, okay? Now there are Christian churches throughout all of Asia, Italy, Persia, Macedonia, Greece, even as far as India where Thomas went. And these are by and large Gentile churches in a matter of about 30 years. Boom, explosion. The distinction between Jewish folk and Christian folk is becoming clear. In fact, we read here in Revelation, we didn't read that verse today, but we'll read it, the first verse next week. Verse 9 says, I, John, your father, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That is, he testified who Jesus was, what he'd done, what that had, much the same thing that Peter had done to the high priest way back just shortly after Pentecost. That he's the stone which the builders rejected. He's going to become the chief cornerstone. Is that because of the testimony of Jesus, he's there on Patmos. He's exiled there. Now, the situation in Israel is falling apart. They have rebelled against Rome in the early 60s. They said, away with the Roman shackles. We'll be our own country. We don't need any Roman guy overlords over us. And they rebel against Rome. Well, what do you suppose Rome does? They send the 10th Legion, the 101st Airborne, right? Or whatever it may be. They send the 10th Legion. And they begin up at the north from Galilee, and they begin to sweep down, conquering and stuff as they go. It'll take them four years to reach Jerusalem. They start up in Galilee, up, up beyond the Sea of Galilee, and come on down like that, and uh, they're there. Uh, Rome invades Galilee. The question, 66 to 68 is the time that I'm saying we're talking about here. Remember I said that's the time when John would have written this down. Will Jerusalem fall? What's going to happen? They, the early Christians, like us, had a great veneration for Jerusalem and all things Jewish. That's our rootage. That's where we get the word from. All the Old Testament, all that, our rootage is there. 
Will Rome, will Rome, will Jerusalem fall? What will happen when the Romans get there? What, we don't know. And so when the book of Revelation is written, when John records his vision, that is still up in the air. They're sort of like where we are today. We don't know what's going to happen here in our nation or the nations around the world. We know it's tumultuous. We can envision several different scenarios. So could they. They didn't know what it was going to be. And so that brings us to Revelation 1, 4 through 8, our text for today. You notice that it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this is addressed to seven specific churches located in Asia. Now I want to emphasize that. Too often, uh, by the way, those seven churches will be named. In just a little bit, we'll see them next week, and then eventually we'll, uh, letters addressed to each of those churches particularly. Philadelphia was one of the churches, remember that? Okay. But we must not lose sight of this historical grounding for the book of Revelation. It's written to specific churches, seven churches, to answer queries and questions and things that they have going on, things that are unsettled. God says, I want to show you what's going to happen. And as he does it to them, he'll show the rest as well what's going on. Now, the temptation that's been yielded to thousands of times down through the years is to think that Revelation is about the end times. It only talks about the end times meaning the end of the world. And the end of the world means my times, right? Because we're all living in the end times, we think. So Martin Luther fell prey to this. He said, yep, we're li- you know, Christ is going to return soon because he said, here's all these things. And so no matter where, go down through church history, and everyone thinks that, that, that Revelation is written about their time. Again, what I'm asserting today, what I want you to understand when you read this, is that it was written to seven specific historical churches. Just like 1 and 2 Corinthians was written to a specific church <clears throat> existing in Greece in the city of Corinth. Now that does not mean that once they read it, they could throw it away. Or we could throw it away. No, no, no. It's, it's good. It's, it's upright. These things were written for us as well. But if they don't make sense, if they don't synchronize with the people to whom they were written, it certainly won't make sense. We've missed the boat. So we need to understand that. Now, God chose to reveal all this. He chose to reveal what's going to happen to John while he's in exile on the Isle of Patmos. Now, here's the way I like to think about verses 4 through 8. You can take this or throw it away. It doesn't matter to me. I think it's a little bit like a movie trailer. You know that? It says, you know, this movie's a little scary, but I want to tell you some things that, that are right and good that you, why you should watch this movie. And so what John does, John has seen the vision. And now he's writing it down. And it's scary what he's seen, what God has told him. And he wants the people who are going to read this, those people of the seven churches in Asia, as well as us, to know some particular things. Know these things. Fair enough? 
So this is not part of his vision. This is him warning us ahead of time. Here's what he says. Grace to you and peace. Now, it's very easy to just read through that and go on. We find similar sorts of greetings in almost every epistle written in the New Testament, right? Oh, that's just this is always there. I would say we ought not to read through that too quickly. What does grace mean? God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, that's a nice little slogan, and it rolls off our tongues, but what does it mean in actuality? Grace is God's power to you to enable you to do His will and to keep your feet from stumbling. That's what God's grace is. It's God's power to you to enable you to do His will and to keep your feet from stumbling. That, I could do a whole bunch with that feet from stumbling, but it's all throughout the Bible, but, but that's what it is. It's our help in every time of need. So he says, you need to know that. God brings grace to you. Grace, grace, grace. And if you have God's grace and you understand what God's grace means, then you have peace. He can see what's ahead. But we have grace. Hallelujah. We know who's in charge. Remember, was it two weeks ago? I did think about the five covenant points. First question was, who's in charge? Remember that? Well, this answers that first question. Who's in charge? God is. None of these things are happening apart from him. He knows what's going on. He's in charge. I can trust him. So don't read through grace to you in peace. And then John says, this is from the Trinitarian God. From him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. That's the one true God revealed in three persons right there. We need to understand that. It's not three gods, it's one God, three persons. The Father is presented as the one who is, who was, who is to come. He knows all things. You'll see that again in verse 8 at the end there when we get to that in due time. Uh, the seven spirits. Some, why seven spirits? That draws back from Zechariah 4 where Mary says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the picture that had been before that was of this lampstand with seven things going. But one oil making it burn. And so seven, the number of completeness, means all the Spirit, the Holy Spirit sends this. And so does the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Colin, put up our next slide, if you would, please. <clears throat> the Trinity is important. Don't blow it off. You may not understand it. You may not think much about it. But it's important. All throughout the New Testament, there are Trinitarian. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't developed for several centuries. But it's there in the Scriptures. Here's, a, here's one classic example from 2 Corinthians, the last verse, chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's grace mean? 
God's power to you to enable you to do His will and to keep your feet from stumbling. Okay? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's called a Trinitarian blessing or benediction. All the persons of the Godhead are there toward us to receive, but the one God. <clears throat> so, he says that, and then, then John writes this. The last one he mentioned was Jesus Christ. Now, he wants us to know some things about Jesus. Let's put those up there. Put one of, the first one up here, if you would, Colin. Know these things about Jesus Christ. Number one, he is the faithful witness. He tells us who God is. He tells us what God is like. He is the exact representation of the Father. So you must receive his witness. He tells us that we need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. He tells us that he is the Savior. There is none other. That's what Peter said, right? He's the faithful witness to tell us about God and about ourselves and about the world in which we live. Jesus Christ is that faithful witness. He also is the firstborn from the dead. That is, his, who he is, his testimony is confirmed by the fact that Jesus really did die. He was buried, and that same body in which he was buried was raised from the dead. Spiritual body, but a body, there's a direct connection between the flesh and the spirit. That's why he tells his disciples, look at me, see here, it's me, it's my flesh. Glorified, but the same flesh. He's the firstborn from the dead, which gives us all hope after our death. That's why we bury people in bodies. The, the, the body's going to be raised. Okay? What else? Know these things. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. <laughs> I always have a hard time with that. <laughs> Don't you? He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. They can't live, move, breathe without his permission. And they do wicked things. Go back and read about Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't believe it either. And all of a sudden, the mind of a beast was given to him for seven years. He was gone, came back and said, oh, I, now I know. <clears throat> and so even though he, God in his beneficence, in his benevolence, lets us do all kinds of things because he's drawing people out of that, nonetheless, he is the ruler over all the kings of the earth, all the... He is the one. Uh, well, let's get, I, I thought I had a lot of time, but I don't have a lot of time. We, we read the story of Polycarp in, in confirmation today. Polycarp is 86. Well, I'm going to tell this later on, but he knew who was king and he was burned to death. And he said, thank you, God, that you've counted me worthy to bear witness to you like this. Hallelujah. He knew who was the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, how about this Jesus? What else? He loves us, his people, the church. That's who this is written to. He loves, you, you people know seven churches? You people in this church here? He loves us. Jesus does. 
the ruler of the kings of the earth, the firstborn from the dead, the faithful witness, he loves us. Hello, 1 John 4, 8 and 9, right? We can sing it, but we won't. He loves us, the church. We need to know that because of what's going to come up, what's going to go on. Know that he loves us. What else? He releases us, people in church, he releases us from our sins. That is, they're gone. They're they're released. They're going to fall off. How? By his blood. If you have a bloodless Christ, you have no Christ. John says, know these things. You're released from your sins, hallelujah, by Christ through his blood. What he, the sacrifice he paid for us. <clears throat> what else? He makes us a kingdom, a people with a head, a kingdom, and we're all called to be priests to the Father. We have access to the throne. We can pray. We can receive. We're priests. He makes us that in his name. That's why whenever you pray, always in somebody include in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you go there in your own name, you'll be toast and ashes, you know. He's merciful, though. But always we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he makes us be a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. And what else? To him, he says, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Glory means the exact representation of his character. That's who he is. And his character is that he rules over all. May that be his forever and ever and ever. So the conclusion. This may take longer than we want. But such is life. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And even those who pierce him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. He is coming with the clouds. That's a prominent theme throughout scriptures. The clouds represent the presence of God for blessing, protection, or for judgment. Uh, Let's have the first one up there of these. Colin, do you have these? Okay, God's presence for protection or for judgment. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, so it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. All right, they're, they're leaving Egypt. <clears throat> they're on the way to Israel at the Red Sea, and the cloud comes. And the cloud's been guiding them all along there, and it's going to guide them some more. But the cloud comes and stands between them. So that cloud is going to be both for, 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 for protection and for judgment because it's going to protect the Israelites so they, they can cross the Red Sea all that night he dries it up, they cross all that, and the Egyptians don't come after him. But what's the next one, Colin? The Lord, down on the army, the Lord looked down. I typed this hurriedly. The Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. They were judged. How many of those Egyptians' army escaped. Zero. That cloud was to them a cloud of judgment. It confused them. All these things happened, and they had to do that. Let's look at the next one. What do we have next? 
Psalm 18. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness, that is, with clouds under his feet. He made the darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the sky. But always the clouds are meant to say, God's presence is near. These thick, dark, thick clouds, God's presence is near for blessing or for judgment. Go ahead, the next one, Psalm 104, I think. God's presence, uh, well, he makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. Here's one from Isaiah 19. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the hearts of the Egyptians will melt. That is, these things are going to happen there in Egypt hard things. It's going to scare them. Their hearts are going to melt. It's the judgment of God that they're going to experience. Now, we have one last one, Matthew 26, 64. <clears throat> this is Jesus on trial before the high priest and all those guys, before his crucifixion, and uh, they asked him if he's the Christ. If so, say so. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself, Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. <clears throat> now, we all know that the way Jesus went to heaven, the ascension, he was in clouds, right? Acts 1, he went up in the clouds. He says, same way I'm going to come back. Uh, <clears throat> but he says here, you will see the Son of Man. He tells Caiaphas and Annas and those guys we read about, he tells them, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. My suggestion to you is that part of what uh, verse 7 of Revelation 1 is about is the promise that the Jewish leaders will see the judgment of God that Jesus proclaimed, and they'll see it in AD 70. God judged the nation. The temple, which they thought was indestructible, is gone. No longer necessary. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. All sacrifices now are extraneous, and now they will be actually blasphemous if they were to sacrifice again and say that they're looking for Christ. But he's given them 40 years to figure this out. Now, whoosh, he washes it away, says it's no good, it's gone. Now, we think that likewise, that's the picture of Christ returning at the end. Christ will return. Every eye will see him. He'll come down. It will be for protection and for judgment. And uh, for those who don't know the Lord, it's not good. For those who do know the Lord, it's wonderful. We anticipate it. We look for it. We long for it. But it's up to him to say when. So what do we need to know? Put the last slide up there, Colin. I am the Alpha and the Omega, <clears throat> says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The word is the Pancrocator. Pen, I can't say it now. My, my tongue's messed up. Pantocrator, there we go, got it out. Whew. That is, he's mightier than everything there is. The Pantocrator, he rules over all. 
So John, at the very beginning of the, the vision, before he's going to write it down or distribute it to him, says, you need to know these things. I would suggest, I wouldn't just suggest, I'd preach to you and to me that we need to know those things as well because we live in tumultuous times. And the things that he told them, we need to know they're still true. We need to know who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And knowing those things, may we have grace and peace from him. Amen.